that. But he, he had a chapter on, on how to deal with people. And, and Henry Cloud's a Christian, and this, this chapter was largely based on the Bible, especially the book of Proverbs, and he, and he saw in the Bible something very helpful. He saw that there's three different types of people in the book, book of Proverbs. There's wise, there's foolish, and there's evil people. And he said, what you've got to do, and I think this is right, you've got to work out whether a person is wise, foolish, or evil, and then figure out how you're going to respond. If a person is wise, generally they make good decisions and they take criticism on well and that kind of thing. And therefore, what you're going to do is you're going to bring them into your circle. You're going to love them, care for them, all that kind of stuff. You're going to trust them a lot. You're going to not have to micromanage them. For, for foolish people, what, what do they do? They make silly decisions. They can be frustrating to be around. They don't keep their word. Um, they deflect criticism. And he said, for those kind of people, what you've got to do is you've got to point it out to them. You've got to love them. You've got to care for them. But there may be a point at which their foolishness is affecting you so much. You've got to actually set up the relationship so that their foolishness hurts them and not you or the organization. And then he said, there's evil people. And evil people are trying to hurt you or the organization, especially when you give feedback to them. And he said, basically, what you've got to do is you've got to get them out of your organization. You've got to have nothing to do with them because these people are toxic. And as I was reading this book, I was like, wow, actually, that, that's, kind of, that's a lot of wisdom there. But then, I, then I've been reading through the book of Exodus. And I've been thinking, does God act like that? Well, when the, the people of Israel exhibit very unwise and foolish behavior. When, when they, they exhibit toxic behavior, evil behavior. Does God go, okay, I'm going to actually have nothing to do with you. But when you also exhibit foolish behavior, when you and I exhibit evil behavior, when, when, when we do things that we know are wrong, is God a God who just goes, okay, I'm, I'm following Henry Cloud's advice, so I'm going to have nothing to do with you? Or does God have a different agenda? See, because as we've seen over the last couple of weeks, the God, Israel has acted flagrantly, foolishly, and evilly. They've done so many things that are wrong, especially the, the creation of the golden calf. And what is God going to do? As we look at this passage, we're going to see three things about God. We're going to see God's presence, God's character, and God's standards. God's presence, God's character, and God's standards. As you guys know, we've been looking at the book of Exodus, where, where the, Exodus, the book of Exodus is divided into two parts. 1 to 19, God has saved his people from Egypt. And 20 to 40, which basically says God, God is saying, this is how you're meant to live. And we saw last week, they just totally blew it with God. Israel totally blew it with God and made and worshipped a golden calf. And so what is God going to do? Let's have a look at the first point, God's presence. Have a look at verse 1 with me, of chapter 33. 
Then the Lord said to Moses, Leave this place, you and, your pe- you and the people you brought up out of Egypt, and go up to the land I promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, say, saying, I will give it to your descendants. I will send an angel before you to drive out the Canaanites, Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go with you. Because you are a stiff-necked people and I might destroy you on the way. Here's the problem for God. God is so furiously angry with them. And yet, God has promised them a new land. So God says to them, I'm not going to go, but I'm still going to give you the land. I will hold my part of the bargain. I will keep it. But you go on. And so, have a look at how they respond. Have a look at verse 4. When the people heard these distressing words, they began to mourn, and no one put on any ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, Tell the Israelites, you are a stiff-necked people. If I were to go with you, even for a moment, I might destroy you. Now take off your ornaments, and I will decide what to do with you. So the Israelites stripped off their ornaments at Mount Horeb. Here they are. They are mourning because of their sin. But do you notice three times it says about stripping off ornaments. What's, What's that all about? Here's what I think is happening, right? And I'm not 100% clear on this. But back in this day uh, and back in, um, back in uh, even our day, right? What do you do when you go out? Generally, you might put on uh, some extra jewellery, right? You might have a nice watch or you might have earrings, all that kind of thing. And in a time of mourning, back in this day, you would take any jewellery off. They are mourning and showing <clears throat> excuse me, that they are repenting by their mourning and by their stripping off of the ornaments. And in verses 7 to 11 here, we see that, that, they, that there is a temple set up. And when Moses goes in, the God's presence is clearly with him. This is a display of God's grace that he has responded, not in anger right now, but in grace. He is showing that His presence is still with them. And yet Moses has a conversation with God. Have a look at verse 12 with me. Moses said to the Lord, You have been telling me, lead these people, but you will not, sorry, you have not let me know whom you will send with me. You have said, I know you by name and have found faith, and you have found favor with me. If you are pleased with me, teach me your way so that I, I may know and continue to find favor with you. Remember that this nation is your people. The Lord replied, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. Notice notice what what, what Moses is saying. He's saying, hey, you've said for me to do this, but I'm not sure what you're going to do, uh, God. And God replies to him, my presence will will go with you. I will go with you. Now, who's the you he's talking about? Is the you there Moses or Israel? I think it's both. Here Moses has stood in the breach between God and and his people and pleaded. And what we see in the rest of the chapter is God says, I will go with you. My presence will go with you. Why does God go from saying, hey, you can have the land, but I'm not going to go with you, to actually I'm going to go with you. I think it's all in verses 4 to 6. It's stripping off the ornaments, the mourning, repentance. They show, in a small way, 
that they are repentant. What is repentance? Well, the easiest way I've thought about it is just chucking a yui, right? You're going away from God, and what do you do? You repent, you turn away, and you go back God's way. You say, I've lived this way in rebellion against God. I'm going to turn the opposite way and go towards Him. It seems like in the Bible, God, God prizes humility that leads to repentance more than anything. I wonder when you think of people, what do you prize? Some of, you know, some of us will go, well, I, I really like to hang around people that are nice. If they're nice uh, and caring, maybe I, I like that. Some of us love uh, fun people, you know, full of humour. And they're the kind of people we like to hang out with. God actually says, I value humility that leads to repentance. They're the people that he draws near to. If you have a look at at the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, what's very interesting is that when you ask people, who does Jesus actually come near towards? Who does he accept? And some people will go, well, he rejected all the religious leaders. And you go, well, actually, that's not quite true. He rejected the majority of religious leaders, but not all. John chapter 3, he seems to have a conversation with Nicodemus when Nicodemus is truly asking him some serious questions. Then you say, well, Jesus actually seemed to, the outcast, but there are some outcasts seem to walk away from Jesus having not understood him. Or know him. No, when you have a look at the Gospels, Jesus comes near to those with humility. That humility which leads to repentance. What's the difference between the two sons in Luke 15? Well, both have blown up with their father. One comes back humbly to the father. The other one, the older one, doesn't. See, when God draws near to Israel here, he does it because they repent. They they have heard what God is going to do and they repent. God draws near through his presence because they exhibit humble repentance. This is seriously important. A number of years ago, I was sitting down with a, with a friend of mine uh, um, and I, I told him how God seemed really distant. My, there was no joy when I heard, uh, you know, when I, when I was singing at church, there was no joy when I was studying the Bible, there was no joy in my life. God seemed really, really distant. And it was very interesting. The first question is this. He said, what sin are you actively repenting of right now? And I said, no, 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 you don't get it. Uh, My problem is not my sin. My problem is actually, you know, I'm feeling far from God. I want to talk about that. And he said, no, no, hands. what sin are you actively repenting of? And I said, well, I don't see the connection. And he showed me from this passage and a number of other passages where God is close to those people who repent. And for those of us who don't repent or find, find ourselves being right or arrogant or proud, that's like anathema to God. 
If you feel like you are far from God, that God's presence is not with you, that's a terrible place to be in. I've been there and it, and it just is, is, is rubbish, isn't it? And yet, what are you going to do? Well, I think the scriptures would lead you to ask yourself, what sin should I repent of? The scriptures would lead you to actually talk with people around you and say, hey, what sin should I be repenting of? What, what error do you see in my life? If you are married, ask your spouse. I'm sure they'll be forthcoming with something, right? What, what, I, what I've noticed is that my Christian life ebbs and flows. Sometimes I'll be full of joy. Sometimes I'll be down in the pits. But, but, but you know, every time when God is bringing me out of, out of the pit, He's showing me how great Jesus is, but he's also showing me areas I need to repent of. The question is, do you have the humility to look at your life and go, actually, I'm not in a good place with God. I'm not feeling it at the moment. And are you willing to humbly look at your life and repent? The beautiful thing about, about God is we, we, hold, we believe in a God if we repent, he's willing, he's willing to forgive. And that leads us on to our second point, God's character. That's our second point, God's character. In this next section, from verse 12 onwards, oh sorry, chapter 34 onwards, it's a lot like chapters 20 to 23. God, Moses goes up a mountain, speaks with God, all that kind of thing. And we see that in verses 1 to 3 of verse 34. Have a look at it with me. The Lord said to Moses, Chisel out two stone tablets like the first ones, and I will write them on them the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Be ready in the morning and then come up on Mount Sinai. Present yourself to, to me there on the top of the mountain. No one is to come with you or be seen anywhere on the mountain. Not even the flocks and herds may graze in front of the mountain. So Moses chiseled out the two stone tablets like the first ones and went up Mount Sinai early in the morning. So here is Moses meeting with God. And Moses is carrying those tablets. And in verse 5 we see what happens. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name the Lord. Who is God? Verse 6. Then he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents of the third and fourth generation. God is proclaiming here how unique he is that there is no God like him in the world, both at this time or our time. Once again, I'm an ancient history geek, right? And I've looked at other gods. And what's very, very interesting is that the gods of the, of the people around Israel were totally unlike God here. They weren't forgiving. They weren't gracious. They were ready to fly off the handle at any point, but that's not God. Have a look at, once again, how he describes himself. Uh, once again, verse 6. He is compassionate. He, that means God is genuinely concerned for you and for humans in general. And he seeks to 
care and show you mercy. He, he is gracious. He, he does things for people that they don't deserve. He forgives them, forgives us like we don't deserve it, even though we don't deserve it. He is slow to anger. He is patient. Over and over and over again, he shows patience with you and with me and with Israel. He is abounding in love and faithfulness. The word there, it's just one word in Hebrew. It's the word hesed. It's this kind of covenant love where God says, I have made promises to you to love you and I'm going to keep on loving you because I have made those promises. Humans are fickle. God is not. He is a God who forgives sin. And yet there's that last section where he says, I'm going to punish sin. He is a God who is just. There is a point at which if you keep rejecting this God, God will say, that's enough. That is enough. See, I think, why, why does God kind of talk about his character here? Why doesn't he talk about Israel's faults? I think he's trying to impress upon them and us that Israel's relationship with him is based on the unchangeability of his character, not the fickleness of their performance. Israel's relationship with him is based on the unchangeability of his character, not the fickleness of their performance. And can I say, that's the same with you. If you follow the Lord Jesus... Your relationship is not based on your performance. It's based on what he's done for you. It's based on his unchanging character. And, and you see that all the way through the Bible. My, my, my favorite, um, my favorite uh, example of this is the thief on the cross. I mean, can you imagine if the th what the conversation would be when the thief on the cross finally got to heaven? The thief on the cross rocks up, and he just doesn't know where he's at. He just, uh, you know, a couple of seconds ago, it felt like to him, he was saying, hey, remember me when you come into your kingdom to Jesus, and now and an angel comes up to him and goes, hello, um, uh, so, you, so you're in heaven, why are you here? And he goes, I, I, I don't know. Okay, okay, well, we've got some questions for you. Um, what church were you a member of? And he goes, I, wasn't, I, didn't, I didn't go to, go to church. And he goes, oh, okay, okay. Um, let's talk about Bible. Um, what's your, how much of the Bible have you got memorized? Or, you know, what's your, actually, no, tell us your, your favorite passage in the Bible from memory. Because I, I never read the Bible. Oh, okay, okay. Um, well, well, let's get on to um, doctrine. What's your doctrine? Scripture, he goes, I, I don't know. And the angel goes, why are you here? And he says, I am here because the dude on the middle cross said I could come. See, when you get to heaven, God's not going to give you this test on your performance. You, you're going to be there because Jesus on the middle cross said you could come. And he died for you. You are not standing here or sitting here as a Christian based on your performance. 
You, you are here based on the performance of Jesus. See, the beautiful thing is Jesus says something that is very unlike our world. Our world is so performance-driven, isn't it? I saw a video that was a bit stupid this week. There was a guy who was who's, who's a leadership guru, and he was talking about standards in his business, and he said all, all the guys in his, his business have got to have 12% body fat or lower. And I was like, wow, I will never work there, right? Eh? <laughs> you know? And he said, we, we measure it every week. And if you're over 12%, you've got a week to get it down or you're fired. Wow, right? The funny thing is, he was in a company that had nothing to do with fitness or body fat or anything like that. And I was like, it's all about standards, right? Or think about your work. You may, I don't think you guys have a body fat percentage thing at all your work. If you do, probably want to change jobs. But, but, but you guys have standards at your work, right? I mean, your boss is expecting you to be productive. Your, your boss is expecting to make, you to make the company money, to, to achieve outcomes, goals, all that kind of stuff. Or when you think about it with, with your kids, I mean, don't, don't you look on, on the internet and it seems like everyone's posting all the photos showing that they're a great parent, right? And then you look at your, your parenting and you go, man, I just don't measure up. It seems like our world is all about performance. You have to measure up. And then we come to God and we think, well, God is all about performance. No, he's not. He's not. Your relationship with God is not based on your performance. It is based on what Jesus has done. And here's why that's really important, because some people in this room are exhausted. Because we feel like, oh, I'm doing more and more, and, and, and is this enough? Have I told, uh, am I doing enough around church? Am I volunteering enough? Oh, well, am I, am I telling enough people about Jesus? Am I reading enough of the scriptures? Am I praying enough? Where did you get these standards from? So your, your relationship with God is not based on your performance. It's based on his character, which he just demonstrates how great his character is by sending Jesus to die for you. Your relationship with Jesus is based on what he has done for you. When Jesus died, a wave of grace reached you. When Jesus died, your sin was dealt with once and for all. When Jesus died, you were washed clean. When Jesus died, your heart came alive. When, when Jesus died, the amazing love of God that he has for you was displayed. And that all happened 2,000 years or so before you were born. Can you see how your relationship with Jesus is not based on your performance? It's based on what he has done. God tells Moses his character. Moses writes it down so that the Israelites, so we would know that God is a gracious and compassionate God. And we see that grace, compassion, forgiveness, love in Jesus. But does that mean, if God is a gracious and compassionate God, does that mean he doesn't have standards? 
No, he does. He has standards, and that's our last point. But notice in the rest of this section, especially from verse 10 onwards, God is going to talk about his standards. But notice the argument in verse 34. Sorry, in chapter 34. Chapter 34, God starts off by going, I am gracious, I am compassionate. This is who I am. I forgive. I do this. And then he says, these are my standards. Just like with the Ten Commandments, it was, I have saved you from Israel, therefore live. See, it's not, it's not, hey, you've got to do these things and then I'll accept you. It is, you are accepted, you are saved, you are loved, therefore, in response to that, live this way. Have a look at verse 10 with me. Then the Lord said, I am making a covenant with you before all your people. I will do wonders never done before done in any nation in all the world. The people you live among will see how awesome is the work that I, the Lord, will do for you. God is saying, I'm going to do this. Not only has God done, but he will do. And notice how once again, it's not based on, on on them keeping his standards. God is going to do this. And therefore, what does he say? In response to that, verse 11, obey. Obey what I command you today. I will drive out before you the Amorites, the Canaanites, Hittites, Perovites, Hizzites and Jebusites. But notice once again in verse 11, what God is going to do, he's going to drive them out. It's grace upon grace upon grace. Then, verse 12, so what should you do? I'm going to do all these things. Verse 12, be careful not to make a treaty with those who live in the land where you are going, or they will be a snare among you. Break down their altars, smash their sacred stones, and cut down their Asherah poles. Do not worship any god, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Be careful not to make a treaty with those who live in the land, for when they prostitute themselves to gods and sacrifice to them, they will invite you and you will eat their sacrifices. And when you choose some of their daughters as wives for your sons and those daughters prostitute them to themselves to their gods, they will lead your sons to do the same. Do not make any idols. Here he's saying two things. Because I have saved you, there's two things that you should do or you shouldn't do. First, do not make a treaty. Do you see how he does that twice? Don't make a treaty with the people around him. Don't enter into this mutual agreement. Why? Because they're going to lead you away. And did you notice how he says... If you do that, your sons or daughters may marry people who worship other gods. And they may be led astray. Here's the thing for today. We have to do this thing where we want to be around people who don't know Jesus and we want to love them and we want to care for them. But we've got to be wise about those relationships also. In case they may be led astray. I've got a friend who entered into a business partnership with a person that doesn't follow Jesus. And over about three or four years, he saw his relationship with Jesus falter because he was adopting the worldly ethics that this guy had. And in the end, he had to basically be bought out of the company because he chose Jesus 
over riches, which is so hard because you spend, you know, 60, 80 hours a week, every week working for this company to get it off the ground. But also, it talks about who you should or shouldn't marry here. Now, now m- most of us are married and we've got kids, but can I ask you this question? Are you having conversations with your kids already who they should go out with and who should they marry? And you're probably going, well, my kid's three. I mean, that's just silly, isn't it? Well, when are you going to have those conversations? The Bible is very clear that you've got to have, uh, that people should marry, if you follow Jesus, marry someone who's a Christian. Now, now, if you're in a relationship, if you're married to someone who's not, you know how hard it is to have the most important part of your life not shared by someone who you're married to, who you love, right? And you don't want that for your children. So I ask you, are you having that, those conversations with your kids? And you go, well, what? Oh, my kid's five. Well, when are you going to start having those conversations? Because... When it becomes an issue, it's probably going to be too late. My kids, oh, for some reason, when they go to preschool, they come home going, oh, I've got a boyfriend, I've got a girlfriend. I go, okay, great, right? You know, good, let, let's set up the marriage now. No, I'm joking, we don't say that, right? First question, do you know if they love Jesus? Well, we're not trying to say, actually, this relationship is going to go the distance, you're going to get married. No, no, no. We know that, you know, next week they're going to, you know, they're not going to talk to each other or whatever. They're not. But we're saying to them, hey, this is actually super, 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 super important. We want you to, uh, you know, marry someone who follows Jesus so that they can encourage you, you can encourage them, you can serve together. And so if you're a parent, they're the kind of conversations that you have to have. One of my kids came back from the crew um, um, crew camp and smitten with someone of the opposite sex. And uh, they came home and said, you know, we're smitten. You know, didn't use the word smitten, but, you know. And uh, first thing, oh, don't worry, mum and dad. I know what church they go to. They go to Chatswood Presbyterian Church. And, and I think that's a good church. And I was like, okay, okay, good. We don't ha- want to have this conversation. See, I don't want my kids to be led, led into eternity without Jesus because I didn't do my job as a parent of having those hard conversations. Are you willing to have those hard conversations? The, the other thing that this passage says is... Um, be careful not to worship idols. And we talked about that so much, haven't we? There are so many idols around that we can worship. But in verses 18 to 26, it talks about celebration. In response to what God has done, you should celebrate. Have a look at verse 18 with me. Celebrate the festival of unleavened bread. For seven days, eat bread made without yeast as I commanded you to. He's saying, remember in the Exodus, you didn't have time to put yeast in your bread, so you're going to celebrate this. Then in, then, uh, in verse 22, flip over to with me. It says this, Celebrate the festival of weeks with the first fruits and the wheat harvest and the festival of ingathering at the turn of the year. Uh, as the crops come in, you're meant to celebrate that and celebrate God's goodness. Why is celebration so important? Because back in this day, as well as ours, 
you show me who you celebrate or what you celebrate, and I'll show you the God that you worship. If you became a worshipper of Baal, you had a bunch of celebrations that you went through. If you became uh, you know, you know, a worshipper of Dagon or Molech, you would, well, there would be different celebrations. If you worship the God of the Bible, you celebrate certain things that are different from the world around us. And isn't that true today? Don't we see what a person celebrates that shows what they worship? We have a huge celebration every year in our city, which is all about sexuality. Millions upon millions of dollars, thousands upon thousands of people descend to one place where they're all worshipping at the idol of sexuality. When I, when I was a musician, it was very interesting that I would play at weddings where people would spend tens of tens of thousands of dollars on a wedding. And I didn't mind that because we were getting paid, right? But, but really, when you're going to spend, when you're going to put yourself in debt for one day, doesn't that show you're worshipping romantic love? I, I, I saw a friend on... on um, on social media, who, who got a promotion, the promotion that they've always wanted. And so what did they do? They went down to a, a, a local, uh, really expensive restaurant. They spent 30 grand on it. Took a photo of him paying 30 grand. Doesn't that show you by that celebration that he worships at the altar of achievement? Now, I'm not saying, like, if, if, you, if you get a promotion, celebrate. That's cool, Right? But I'm saying that if you celebrate in this really huge, ostentatious way, aren't you, aren't you saying that we're actually not just celebrating but worshipping? I saw another, uh, another lady who celebrated the third birthday of her child. And she said, hey, you've got to go to this wedding, this party planner. And I looked at the party, you know, how much it costs. And I started seven grand for a third birthday party. And it was a boy, and they didn't even have Star Wars. And I was like, you know, why, why would you do that? Doesn't that say she's worshipping her children? See, because what you celebrate shows what you worship. And, and as Christians, we come together to celebrate. We celebrate the Lord Jesus and what he's done every week. Why? Because that's the God we worship. See, God's standards is based on what he has done. He, he says, be very careful of the relationships that you're getting into. Don't get into relationships that are going to take you away from me. Don't, don't get into relationships that are going to force you to worship other things. And be very careful what you celebrate. Celebrate what I tell you to celebrate more than anything. Don't celebrate what this world says for you to celebrate. I started off this sermon by talking about uh, toxic people and how a particular writer said, if a person's evil or foolish, you, know, you should avoid them, Right? But isn't God great that he doesn't do that with us? God doesn't avoid us because of our toxicity. 
But he takes, in Jesus, he takes our toxicity on himself. When Jesus dies on the cross, he's taking on our evil and our foolishness, our toxicity, and he pays the price. That shows you that we, we worship a God who is compassionate and gracious, abounding in love, slow to anger, and yet a forgiving God. That's the God who we worship. That's the God who we, because of what he's done, we love to live for him and celebrate him. Let's pray. Oh, Father God, Lord, we thank you that you've got every reason to reject us. You've got every reason to, to just go, your, your foolishness and your toxicity and your evil is just, I've had enough. You could have done that with Israel, but you don't. We praise you that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love. Lord, I pray for those of us here who um, we know that with our head, but our heart, we're not feeling a relationship with you. Your presence just seems to be gone. Lord, I pray that you would help us who are going through that really hard stage to see what sin you are calling us to repent of. Give us the humility to, to do that and to repent. Help us to be honest with the people around us so that we may do that. Lord, I pray for those of us who are just tired because we feel like we've got to do more and more and more and more. But we thank you that you are not a God who measures our performance and says, if you perform like this, then I'll love you. Thank you that our, our relationship with you is not based on our performance based on your character and what you've done for us. And Lord, in response to what Jesus has done, Lord, help us to live different lives. Help us to worship not the idols of the world, but worship you. Help us not to celebrate the things our world celebrates, but celebrate what you have done for us. And may the world see by how we live and what we worship and what we celebrate that you are the one who has animated us and given us life, not only in this world, but in the next also. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.